3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. The Australian Medical Aid Foundation is a non-political, non-religious and not-for-profit organisation. It is providing medical aid to war-ravaged regions of Sri Lanka. One of its main fundraising events since 2001 has been the Good Friday Radiothon Appeal, both here in Melbourne and also in Sydney. And volunteers take over our airwaves on that day to appeal for and acknowledge donations to assist them with their work. I spoke with the Victorian branch secretary, Dr. Sathi Sivangaran, and began by asking him about the genesis of the organisation and its aims at that time. So the Australian Medical Aid Foundation has been now running for over just over 21 years, um, and it coincided, the founding of the organisation uh, was mainly to support our people during the civil war that lasted for nearly 30 years in Sri Lanka and to provide um, basic health services because um, um, during the war times there was hardly any uh, government-funded health services in the affected area. So as an NGO, um, we were able to provide valuable service uh, on the ground. Um, and it's evolved over the years and now, and even since the completion of the civil war, there's still a lot that needs to be done. So we are continuing the um, the work that we started over 20 years ago. And who were those health professionals back then? Well, it was mainly expat um, Sri Lankan doctors who were working in Melbourne and Sydney because the, these two cities were our biggest population base in Australia. And it was just a um, bunch of people who wanted to do something back home and we just formed a group and got ourselves organized. And literally initially in the early days, because we didn't have a large diaspora in Australia, we were self-funded in the sense that we would put our own wages, part of our wages into the group's um, accounts and then carry out projects as they came about. But the specialists were, you know, it could be GPs, it could be cardiologists, all all manner of um, specialists mainly, and also allied health professionals like optometrists, nurses, uh, physiotherapists, occupational therapists. So we have uh, a wide variety of medical and paramedical uh, specialists who are in our group, and we all do um, 
work that's related to our fields um, and we support our brethren back home as much as we can. I'd imagine it would be very difficult to assist in a time of civil war though. How did you do it in those early years? Yes, look, we because we were a registered organisation, uh, what I mean by registered is that we were uh, actually registered here and everything was above board. Uh, and we had good working partners in Sri Lanka, both at government, Ministry of Health level, and as well as local and international NGOs who already had a presence in um, Sri Lanka. And we were able to do some of our projects were done as joint uh, ventures with other international partners. The others, we did it ourselves. It depended on our budgetary constraints and what exactly was needed uh, on the ground. Um, but we had good relationships with both the government and the um, in the earlier days in the um, rebel-controlled areas because we were just a health organization. We were not you know, necessarily into politics. We just wanted to do medical work and provide badly needed services in Sri Lanka. So, and so, and we we had never we never faced any difficulties in getting through to the other side and providing the services that was um, needed there. But your work was in the Tamil areas of the north and the northeast. Yes, most mostly. Yes, we are not uniquely working in uh, you know in north and east but most of our projects are done there because for the simple reason that the north and east provinces were the worst affected areas so we um, concentrated our efforts there but we have done many projects uh, in the south as well but the we because we work with a limited budget we have to concentrate on projects that have the biggest value for our money and and their services were not um, available. And so most of the time we were just doing basic medical work, like providing primary health care, like what we would call a GP practice. So basic health access uh, and dental um, access to uh, to the population, and especially isolated communities who were cut off from the main towns in the north and east because of the war and also transportation issues. But as I said, because we were a registered organization we did not have any trouble from the authorities in actually gaining access to the north and east they knew that we were just an ngo doing work and and we were probably doing work that the government should have been doing so it's probably saved them some money on their side so, so yeah we as i said we had not had any trouble uh, gaining access to areas and so we were we have been Luckily, we have been able to continue our presence in Sri Lanka, mainly in the North and East, uh, over the last 20 years. I would imagine in a time of civil war, though, that health clinics and hospitals would have been badly affected. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, There were occasions where there were physical damage to the hospitals and our medical clinics from, you know, uh, inadvertent cross, you know, being caught up in crosswire. But also getting adequate equipment and medicines into the area was a problem. But we as an NGO, and as an NGO that had worked there for over the years, we had built trust on both sides. And therefore, we were 
never really impeded in our work. We, you know, we did everything by the book. We sent items through here and was cleared with the Ministry of Health help um, at the other end in Sri Lanka and then transported across uh, uh, into the provinces. And yes, it was logistically it was hard in the sense that you know you had to get permission and. There were too many uh, layers involved in getting the items through, but it had to be done. So we we just got on with it and did it because at the end of the day, it was for the people and and every effort on our part and our volunteers' part was um, utterly worth it. What sort of supplies did you send from here, or did you get your supplies, say, in India and with money? That... Yeah, yeah. So um, even from the earlier days and even now. We actually source um, the supplies from where, from wherever we can, which obviously is, it's quality as well as uh, the price are the two important things for us. And often it is easier to, if, if the products are available in Sri Lanka or India, we would actually prefer to uh, supply them from there itself because it actually saves us a lot of cost in terms of um, uh, transportation uh, costs. So um, we would source as much as possible locally or from India. But if we can't, we would, of course, send um, items from either here or UK or wherever we can get our hands on. But as much as possible, we would actually try to source them um, locally in Sri Lanka or from India. Uh, so, for example, last year, one of the projects that we did was um, we built a six-bedded dialysis unit in one of the provincial towns in north-central province. And the six-dialysis machine actually came from a supplier uh, who was based in India, but they had a regional office in Colombo. And so we we actually got them to directly deal with the hospital in north-central province. And they supplied and they trained. And now it's a fully functioning uh, dialysis unit, which is being put to great use at the moment. That's what we do, and we, we have a team which analyze the costs involved. We have we get quotes from various places, and we will deal with them uh, in a cost-efficient manner. I'd imagine over that 20 years you've been a couple of times. Oh, look, I uh, personally, I have been there many times, countless number of times, both during the Civil War and since. And unfortunately, the last two years, because of the pandemic, we have not been able to travel because of restrictions on this side in Australia as well as on the other side. But I have, yeah, I have personally visited numerous towns and hospitals doing our um, projects over the years. And it's, it's a very rewarding exercise, if I could put it that way, in the sense that here we are highly paid professionals, but it, it's a very satisfying uh, feeling when you can physically go there and help people who actually otherwise go without. So, yeah, no, no, I have been there many times, countless number of times. And what skills do you take with you? Look, I am a um, anaesthetist by training, so I take part in teaching. Um, you know the latest advances in modern medicine in anaesthesia, as well as actually volunteer my time in the hospitals there, where we would take teams, and we will actually relieve teams there so they could have a break while we go and do some work, be it general surgery or urology um, or obstetrics. Um, and we do, apart from clinical work, we do a lot of teaching as well um, and uh, sustainable projects where we 
train the local staff in certain things and we provide them with all the necessary skill sets and also equipment that they need to continue their own teaching for the future um, uh, graduates in both medicine and so yeah so our our contribution varies depending on their needs we we put together teams based on what they need we don't try to impose our views on them we just ask them what they want and then we will try and work around their needs and find uh, something so in the last two three years for example because of the war years the obstetric services were pretty poor uh, in the northern east especially and they had very high maternal and infant mortality rates partly because there was lack of midwives poor equipment and training for their staff so we put together a team from Australia um, where they are trained in emergencies in obstetrics and, and how to manage emergencies around the child bearing period when they have, you know, towards the end of the pregnancy, um, how to deal with emergency situations. And it's, a, it, it's, for example, it's a course, it's a UK-based program that is taught in every single hospital in Australia. And anyone who works in the obstetric units in Australia, every doctor, nurse, or midwife, the junior doctors, they all have to be certified in that. So we actually train those people there in the same program. And we have trained them over the last three, four years. And it's now it's become a self-running program because we have equipped them with all the tools uh, and the the sim, uh, the simulator we, which we purchased and gave them, and so they can run their own courses. So they run um, these courses for the midwives and their doctors. So that was one of the um, projects that we did. The other one we did was for patients with renal or kidney diseases, as well as even simple things like kidney stones. They used to do major surgery because they lacked uh, laparoscopic equipment and the lasers. So we sent a team from Melbourne with Australian doctors um, and one or two Sri Lankan trained urologists who went around training their uh, doctors, their surgeons, in treating kidney stones and other kidney diseases in modern surgical techniques. And this particular teaching program was not just done in the north. We actually even did it in the south, in Colombo and in the far south, in Gaul, um, because it's a new program for whole of Sri Lanka. They, they have been doing surgical techniques that were outdated and which put patients at risk and, you know, heavy recovery burden on the patients, whereas keyhole surgery is much um, safer and also the recovery is quicker. So we, so we provided that training and the equipment for them so that now they can do it on their own. We, although our surgeons do go and visit them and just oversee them, but we are not there doing the cases anymore. Whereas when we first started three, four years ago, our teams used to go and um, do the cases for them. But now they are self-sustaining. So which is which is the whole idea of medical missions uh, is to, you know, initially we start helping them and then we help them help themselves. And which is pretty satisfying for those who are involved because, you know, given half the chance or half the opportunities that we have, they they achieve a lot. With such a long civil war and a brutal civil war, there must have been, I'd imagine, a lot of people with war injuries and also a long war like that contributes to malnutrition of the people and the the consequences for their health later on? Yes, um, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So 
I guess one of the questions that we are often asked is, why are you still working there when the civil war finished over 10 years ago? But the problem is exactly that, because these things, just, just because the civil war is finished, the problems don't go away. So we have a large population of disabled people from, you know, war injuries, innocent, not combatants, I'm talking about innocent public who have been maimed by landmines to sharpen injuries. So we, one of the programs that we started over 10 years ago was an artificial prosthesis, limb prosthesis program, which we have been doing for now nearly 15 odd years from memory, where we actually fit out people who have lost their legs um, one or both with um, artificial limbs, and we actually even now have a local prosthetic factory where it's made. So we used to have one center in the north. Now we are about we have just recently in the last two years started a program in the eastern province, which was the other war affected area, uh, where we have a lot of victims um, still who need um, support. So it's not only helping the people, but also it's an employment opportunity for the locals to um, work in these um, small factories. So the, the damage from the civil war still lingers and um, we yeah, continue to support them as much as possible. And the other issue is the psychosocial issues from people who have lost family members or entire families and students. Uh, it's been 10 years since the war finished and there have been orphans who are now in colleges and universities who who don't have a means of support. So we, we sponsor students who are studying health-related fields like medical students, nursing students, uh, midwives. We actually have a scholarship program where we support a large number of students who otherwise might not be able to finish their um, tertiary studies. And also, we, yes, uh, in terms of malnutrition and uh, other needs, Yes, it's an ongoing problem, which are also addressed through some of our local partners, um, where we actually provide them um, the funds to continue with the feeding programs at the local school levels, uh, and also through our other partner NGOs who support orphanages and care homes for the war-affected people. Do you also work with groups who are helping to grow the food? Because I would imagine in those areas of war with, as you said, landmines, bombs, unexploded bombs, that agricultural production would have been disrupted for quite a while. Yeah, look, um, yes, we, um, as a um, medical um, organisation, part of our constitution actually prohibits us from taking part in certain types of work. It has to be somehow need to be married into a health uh, perspective. So, we, we have a number of sister organizations in Australia and other Western countries who actually help with those types of um, work. So we have a large um, agricultural department, when I say department, the people who are experts in um, in the food industry who are actually looking after those projects. And we actually play a networking purpose in that we are one of the long established uh, NGOs working in Sri Lanka so we have a lot of contacts so we can actually link people together um, and we have been doing that successfully not just in Australia but also from around the world um, especially in UK, US and Canada so we have sister groups who actually focus on that type of um, program 
but we as a medical uh, um, aid foundation we try and focus as much as possible on providing medical direct medical um, uh, relief um, for us to get involved in other projects we need board approval specific board approval we do make in an emergency we would make donations from whatever money we have so for example the recently there was bushfire last summer we had the bushfires in new south wales so i believe we donated over $10,000 to the um the cfa in new south wales so we we do have provisions to do other things but it has to be approved at special um board meetings uh, for us to do it but it's worked for us over the last 20 years and we don't see the reason to change suddenly to take on um, too many projects because we are somewhat limited by our funds has covid hit sri lanka fairly severely yes it was it's one of the tragic developments in the last two three years has been covid and unfortunately sri lanka suffered in silence you know we hear about what happened in us and also what happened in india but unfortunately um what happened in sri lanka never came to light for whatever reason but sri lanka did suffer a lot thousands and thousands of people died one of our proudest achievements as the Australian Medical Aid Foundation has been our contribution to covid relief in sri lanka we in the last 18 months have actually spent over $750,000 in direct covid related aid to sri lanka to all over sri lanka and um, not just north and east we were one of the first groups to actually to send uh, N95 masks and PPEs and ventilators um, because Sri Lanka is a poor country and they don't have ICU capacities like we do in the West. So we have donated so many ventilators to look after these people all over the country. So as I said, we, we I think from off the cuff, I think we have spent over 750,000 Australian dollars in the last 18 months supporting the COVID relief. and that's probably one of our biggest expenditure in the, in the last 20 years but we were lucky to be in a position to be able to do that and that's the benefit of having a um a well regarded medical aid foundation because we have been doing this for over 20 years our community were digging deep to support us because they knew that if anyone can do relief work in sri lanka it would be us the Sri Lankan diaspora in um, Australia opened their hearts and they actually really supported us uh, during the last 18 months and we also got support from major NGOs like the Rotary Club and, uh, and others who were fantastic whenever we requested help they got their offices in Sri Lanka activated and they were able to provide a similar sort of um, help although we haven't been able to go physically to do things but we have actually um, been able to actually do a great deal of work in the last 18 months that's simply from the support of the local public uh, here in Australia well from what you've been talking about and the work you're doing it makes the good friday appeal especially important absolutely absolutely look it's one of our biggest fundraising efforts and it's done obviously both in sydney melbourne and in other parts and we raise a fair bit Uh, every year probably last year we raised across australia about 250,000 or just over around that vicinity and that amount goes up every year and and we are again looking forward to 
the support of 3CR and all the other community radios across Australia who take part in this. And, and it's, a, it's a great help. It's a great help. From memory, this would be the 21st year of our Radiothon. So it's been going on for a while. And it's Good Friday? Yes, yes, the Good Friday. Actually, we may have missed one during um, the first year of the uh, COVID lockdown, but we did it last year. And the number to call? It's 94198377. That's the Victorian number. But we do have an Australia-wide number as well, which is 1300 990 And between which hours? Um, we usually start from 9 a.m. through to 6 p.m. And we already have sent out for our um, donor base, we, we do have a database where we have sent out the mail outs already. Um, and they would have received it or they will be receiving it very shortly. So they can pre-pledge as well. But we are looking forward to the support of um, people from mainly from Sydney and Melbourne and all the other major cities in Australia. And I'd imagine that you're looking forward to going back as soon as you can. Yeah, look, we have planned tentatively. We are planning a um, trip uh, in October, mainly to check on some of the funding projects that we did. One of the things that we do is, apart from sending money, we just actually make sure that things are actually getting done and the local partners are actually doing what they um, signed up for. So we do have uh, checks and balances. So we, we are uh, looking to get back there and carry on some, carry out some new projects, but also check in on some of the projects that we funded. And unfortunately, we, we haven't been able to check in on those the last couple of years because of the travel restrictions. But one thing to remember is that all of our volunteers are self-funded. We go there out of our own pockets. We don't touch any, uh, not a cent of the money that we raise. And every single dollar that's raised actually reaches the other side because everyone's a volunteer. And it's one of the few NGOs in Australia that can actually claim that. We don't have anyone who is a paid um, staff. So every single dollar that we raise actually ends up for valuable projects in Sri Lanka. Well, thank you very much. And for your great work as well. Yes, no, thank you. No, it's a pleasure. It's, um, it's something small that we do, but it's very much needed. And we also encourage uh, young volunteers who are keen on taking part in this to reach out to us and we will try and get them involved as well. So, and thank you for giving us your support over the years through the community radios and without your help, we can't do this. So thank you. And I was speaking with the Victorian Branch Secretary of the Australian Medical Aid Foundation and I do hope that you can tune in to 3CR Good Friday and help get that appeal going. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. 
Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. 3CR, here to stay. You're listening to 3CR Radio's Breakfast Program. This morning we're bringing you alternative news, community action and updates. We heard on the program last week the results of the first round of elections in Timor-Leste. Coming up also are the elections in the Philippines. I spoke once again with Peter and pointed out that election violence is on the rise in the Philippines. I think that's uh, an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Philippines election is a, is a very big drama and a sort of a definitely a sort of nightmare uh, for the international community because in 1986, you know, there was a very celebrated uh, people's uprising uh, that ended finally the Marcos dictatorship. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of that dictator, is uh, presently the front runner uh, to be president after these uh, elections due on May 9 this year. How did this happen? Once uh, Marcos Sr. was off the scene, the international community ignored the the problem. So within a few years of 1986, uh, Imelda Marcos and the son that we're talking about now, Ferdinand Jr. or Bong Bong, the daughter, they were all back in the Philippines. Uh, Imelda was in the Congress and then later was the son and the daughter were senators. This sort of re-emergence of this uh, political dynasty who had looted the country, it's hard to put your head around the numbers, in the 1980s to have looted over $10 billion, you know, in today's money it's quite a bit more. They, they came back and they were able to buy their way back in and also the international community that could have done something just turned their eyes away. The current the Ferdinand Jr., his campaign is very odd in one way. Uh, it's, it's basically just a misinformation campaign about his father's uh, legacy and he's saying what a good government it was, how stable it was and how disciplined and, and well run the country was. <laughs> Nothing about all the people who were murdered, all those people who were just uh, locked up in concentration camps, uh, tortured and, and of course all of that plunder. But he's basically saying we're going to do the same and expecting the people to vote for him. And Duterte, the current president, is a sort of a sponsoring agent for the Marcos family. You could look back now to 2016 and, and see that probably the most, most of the finance for Duterte's campaign then came from the Marcoses. Going back a little further, there was a strata presidency at the end of the 1990s. Again, uh, a fam, you know, strata was a sort of friend of the Marcoses and represented that side of the political options in the Philippines. That was a sort of another a booster for the return of the Marcoses. You can see the ambition that they really want to be back in the, in the saddle. With uh, Duterte, we witnessed actually a far more bloody regime than, than under the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. This new Marcos is, is saying that uh, he supports all of the programs, especially the, 
the police operations against alleged drug suspects, which have really just been a social cleansing. That's the wrong word, you know. It's just drawing up lists of people to be killed and killing them. That's going to continue. Uh, it's a stark choice for the Filipino people. And, of course, we've got a population where the cohort around the age of 60, uh, 50 to 70, has got a very vivid memory of the horror of, of the Marcos dictatorship. And then there's the younger generations who've heard about it but didn't live through it. And, uh, you know, the, the application of fear. So all, all of these uh, death squad operations, in, especially in Manila and nearby uh, urban areas and Cebu, Negros, have, have really been terrorising uh, communities. So people, you know, calculating whether they should defy or take the risk, you know, of, of somehow being the victims of this violence themselves. So, And then you've, Peter, you've got a whole cohort of people who are willing to carry out these atrocities. Yes, I think that's a mixed, a mixed message, really, that the police and the armed forces more or less are coherent uh, institutions and follow their command structures. But we do know that with the uh, anti-drug operations that a lot of police refuse to do that. A very large number of police on leave for education and you know, enrolled at universities um, because they, they refuse to go out and kill people. And then there was another lot of police that priests were reporting were turning up for confessions on the weekend to cleanse their soul for having killed you know, 10 people during the week. They were killers, sort of looking for some kind of spiritual relief for what they were involved in. So, yeah, I, do, I don't think it's um, at all uh, rock solid, you know, that the, the regime can, can continue doing this without problems, but so far they have. You know, there was such a storm of international condemnation uh, of the drug killings that they have continued, but the, the regime has really sort of played down the reporting of it, it's constrained reporting and also the media by and large has got exhausted from reporting it. Yeah, the, the actual perception of the killings is, is, is modified or reduced now compared to say two years ago. And especially once the International Criminal Court really got going and, and has decided to investigate uh, the Duterte government for these killings, you know, there's, there's far more effort to keep it circumspect. Well, you might have the international or parts of the international community condemning the violence in the Philippines, but you've also got influential governments also who do nothing. Not only do nothing, but they, I mean, they may, they may give lip service, you know, to human rights in the Philippines, but they're basically ensuring that Duterte can uh, continue doing this stuff by supplying uh, loans, weapons, training his military and police forces. You know, the particular governments are the United States, Australia, Japan and South Korea, Canada. These ones uh, are most engaged in, in this stuff. Israel in recent years has also been providing technology and some training you know, for the police and military. The reason for that is sort of uh, one level is purely you know, military-industrial complex. They've, they've got a guy who wants to buy this stuff. There's money to be made by corporations. But at the, at the geopolitical level, because of China and the Philippines being seen as in, on the US side, 
there'll be you know a blind eye turn basically to all of these atrocities so long as he plays his part in the you know developing confrontation containment etc with china yet you've got very brave people haven't you in the philippines peter who despite all this violence are determined to protect themselves protect their families protect their communities yes yes i think uh, it's extraordinary um for outsiders to sort of witness the dynamics here but it's not that hard to understand that uh, if you if you uh, have witnessed your friends or your family members being killed um or unfairly arrested and detained for years and years by the government that you will work hard to get rid of that government and certainly provide support for the victims of the government you know, what's really happening is the violence has been very intense under Duterte and the community that's organized has dug in you know really in a very determined way to resist that and to expose it you know Trump somehow try to turn the tables you know the international solidarity work is is an aspect of that and uh, you know I see it from this external end that people are a very very hurt you know they they're really distressed but at the same time they're sort of doubly determined you know not to not to be defeated by Duterte and that international support comes from groups such as yours but also the fact that internationalists can't go there now or people who are supporting the people of the Philippines are blacklisted yeah that's right i think uh this is another hallmark of the Duterte uh, regime that he's personally hyper uh, allergic to criticism by the international community and and really sort of furiously reacts and and it's been mainly by expelling people you know when they land or cancelling visas of uh, people who have been long standing workers in the Philippines people like me uh, I find it really weird that i'm i'm on a blacklist i can perhaps visit the philippines for a few weeks at a time but i have been doing it for years and years and years and uh you know the work i do is really listening to people writing some sort of journalistic reports and making sure that trade unions especially in australia are continually informed about events and developments with the union movement in the philippines and you know that's I would consider very inoffensive but it's quite enough it's quite enough for me to be banned and uh we've got a more obvious you know celebrated case in a way of sister Patricia Fox who was almost 30 years working in the Philippines uh she's a religious nun she was just doing what she'd always done for 30 years and all of a sudden her visa was cancelled and it's because Duterte or yeah Sarah Duterte the president's daughter complained about her turning up at a uh, Coca-Cola workers picket line in Davao City again you know a very uh, low key event really and all that she did was talk about the basic rights of workers under ILO conventions which is just all the laws which the Philippines themselves have signed up for yes i think that uh, it was just um, a trigger the call was made and then the bureau of immigration tricked her into going to their office and arrested her there but the actual personnel were incredibly apologetic and in the end they said look uh, sister we we're so sorry but 
the president wants you out and there's nothing we can do about it. It was illegal, really, the cancelling of her visa. The judicial system wasn't going to protect her either. That's what's sort of going on um, at an even higher level. The uh, special rapporteurs appointed by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, they should have access to any country um, that they think are necessary, but they're all banned by Duterte. So the ones especially on extrajudicial killings, which is a, a terrible feature of the situation there, they were not allowed to enter. In the end, when the UN Human Rights Council decided to, to do a sort of more formal report on the situation, nobody from the office of the High Commissioner was allowed to go to the country, and they had to interview people in Bangkok. Uh, that is, fly witnesses out of the Philippines into Bangkok. It's, it's really extraordinary, and states like Australia witnessing this really didn't didn't protest uh, at all all of this development when they should they should it's really completely wrong for a, a government like this one in the Philippines to be able to continue operating allegedly like a normal member of the international community while they they do these things and, and really abuse the proper institutions that the international community has created to to try to maintain respect for human rights. It's a very religious country, Peter. What role are the churches playing at this time? Generally, the churches are critics of the Duterte government. It's a little disappointing, I think, uh, and has been for a long time, that the the dominant church is still the Catholic Church. The Bishops' Conference has has been more willing to criticise some of the open-cut mining ventures than it has been to criticise the... Uh, killings of you know poor people in the slum areas of of Manila, but there has been a minority of bishops and priests who have been really brilliant, you know, in their courage, and they haven't been intimidated by threats from Duterte, personal threats, because they they've they've decided to witness uh, what's going on, to visit, for instance, the bishop of Calaocan in the northern part of Manila has visited every family where someone was killed by the police. He was berated by um, Duterte personally as a pedophile and and all sorts of other things, but uh, he persisted. Priests are being, you know, arrested. And and from the Protestant churches, we have a more determined stand on human rights and more courage being shown. And and again, their clergy also being uh, subject to repression. There's also the Independent Church of the Philippines, which is a fairly Catholic, rising against the Spanish. The Pope had backed the Spanish, and so this group of bishops and priests had broken away. Well, they have a strong tradition of supporting democracy and independence for the Philippines, and some of their bishops have been arrested. One bishop I know, Antonio Neron, he's uh, he's forced into exile in Germany. So, so they're paying a price for their stand. And I think that their communities very much appreciate, you know, their courage because they are really important community leaders. It'd be great if the Australian government could make a stand, but we're not holding our breath on that one. No, it's 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 sad. I, I think, uh, you know, in Australia we have a foreign minister, second foreign minister is a woman, the DFAT led by women and. I think that they they are incredibly embarrassed at a personal level by what Duterte does and says. He's such an extreme misogynist as well as all those other things I've described to you earlier. His uh, record on on women, especially, is is 
shocking. And when, say, I was in a meeting with Sister Pat and people from the Foreign Minister's office, they were all just aghast, you know, they, and you could see they didn't want to talk about it. They, they just fell back on, you know, Australia has got a long, complex and important relationship with the Philippines. So that's the formula that's used to just turn a blind eye. You know, we, we're going to just tolerate it. You know, again, I think it's the geopolitics which is dominating Australia's view. Australia is not demonstrating its so-called values about democracy and human rights uh, in relation to the Philippines at all. Well, I'm sure I'll talk to you again, Peter, before the election. We've got a, um, through the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, we've got an uh, observer mission going in, in the Philippines. It's, as you can tell from the problem of visas and all that, it's a little bit fraught to uh, get internationals in there and uh, for them to report. But we think we've got a good system for it. So every couple of weeks there'll be a bulletin that you'll get and uh, hopefully we will raise the profile of this in the Australian public uh, through this sort of work. Okay, thank you very much, Jan. Trade Union and Human Rights Activist Peter Murphy reporting on the situation in the Philippines. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 
855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today we travel to northeast New South Wales, the Northern Rivers area, where floods have ravaged towns and villages over the past month, and try to understand why it's happening, could some of the trauma have been avoided, but more importantly, what will the future for the people in the area be? I spoke with Wayne Wadsworth, better known as Wadsey, permaculturist, industrial hemp farmer, and much more, including an earth repair network. Wadsey's usually home is at Mullumbimby, but when we spoke he was on higher ground, but still wading in water. I asked him first how difficult it is to explain to people who have never experienced floods what he and his community have been going through for the past month or so. Well, hell really. My particular case wasn't that bad. I was, I was actually in, a, in my uh, Winnebago up in uh, behind Mullumbimby, we got sort of flooded in for about four or five days and unable to get out. The road got, the bridge got washed away and the other access was flooded. The pub was about four foot underwater. So I've been in tropical countries and lived around Mullumbimby, Lismore for and on and off for probably 30 years and I've never seen like rain like it. It was a bit, a bit like someone up in the sky with a high pressure hose pouring it down and um, yeah it's uh, I think many people have been in many floods because we're in a flood prone area and never seen anything like like this before and we're just getting hit again uh, three or four weeks later so it's um, I think a lot of people are suffering pretty high depression especially in Lismore. I can remember maybe 10-15 years ago we had a, a big storm here and we've got 100 mils in four hours or something like that but you've got mm. a day after day after night after night yeah and the problem is the ground's as you imagine completely saturated so it rains it just you know everything just rises again the only thing you can go up up and out you know there's nowhere for us to go so and of course we've cleared the rainforest many years ago so there's no holding capacity there but um, the black fellas told the white fellas many years ago not to build in the um, wetlands in Lismore. The white fellas thought they were smarter and told them to put some drains in and some levee walls in. And that's a little bit of Lis- Lismore's history. There's up the hill, and I think seriously they may have to migrate Lismore, you know, up the top of the hills rather than down in the wetlands and maybe return it to wetlands. If we're seriously looking at this sort of weather pattern, and we probably are, you know, droughts and floods, um, it's not the last, you know, area in particular that's going to see these types of floods. So it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. And it's not that it hasn't happened before in Lismore? Not that, well, not recorded. That's the highest flood ever been recorded since Whitefellas got there. But, you know, like, it's, look, we've built. We've drained what we call them swamps, we've drained the swamps, but we've drained wetlands right along the east coast of Australia to put housing on it, and um, some of it's pretty dumb really when you think of it. It's where natural flooding happened, and that's what we call them wetlands. 
the Europeans decided to call them swamps and mosquitoes and drain them and put houses on them. So we really got to, you know, we seriously look at bringing back a lot of the wetlands, particularly on the east coast of Australia, because if you think of it from Melbourne to Cairns, it's pretty much a giant, giant wetlands which stored trillions of tonnes of water and, and gradually seeped through the filtration system and went back to sea and uh, we, you know, nice fish life and all that sort of thing. Um, so we can return it, but it needs a bit of planning and a government that would actually do that, which we certainly haven't got at the moment. No. How do people get out of a situation when they can see the water slowly and slowly rising and the roads are closed? What do they do? Mm. What do you do? Well, I mean, again, in, in um, Lismore, they climbed on their roofs and hoped someone could come and, come and save them. I mean, I, I have a friend who bought a house in Lismore some couple of years ago for the last big flood, and he said it was about two foot under his floorboard, so he just stayed in his house thinking it will not go higher. The flood actually wound up about four foot, five foot up his walls. He had to climb on the roof and kick off one of the panel, uh, the sheets and... Um, Someone rescued him off his roof in a canoe. So that you can just the, the last flood was actually under his floorboard. So it gives you some idea of how how deep the water was. It's quite you know if you drove through Lismore, you wouldn't actually believe that the water could get to the levels it has. And look, if we, I mean, hopefully this latest one passes by. It's supposed to be fine. I think tomorrow for a few days, so that'll allow the water to flow out. But if we're still not over the cyclone season, so you know. Touch will be don't get a third. How far inland has this damage occurred? All the way back to Kyogo. Kyogo was which is probably 60, 60, 70 k's off the coast. And I look, I'm, I imagine there's slips, you know, right up in the hills and things that we don't even know about. And a lot of farmers, some um, land has, you know, slipped off the edges of things. So. But yeah, Kyogre, which normally doesn't get hit that hard in these sorts of storms, um, it got pretty hammered too. So yeah, so, so everyone's had a, had a hammering. And I'm down at Yamber at the moment, which is you know, 100 odd k's from Byron. I'm, I'm flooded in, and I was just at a property yesterday looking to grow hemp there. And uh, I just rang my friend now. They're flooded in. They just they were flooded in three weeks ago, so they're flooded in again probably for four or five days. And particularly areas like that, because again they were all wetlands. You know, once the water comes in and it's so saturated, it takes a fair while for the water to actually drain back. I mean, the favourite thing is to put in levees, and levees are fine as long as the water doesn't go over the levee. Once it goes over the levee, you, you've got a great lake, and it takes a hell of a long time for that water to, to drain out because it's only draining out in certain spots. So yeah, as again before we put levee banks up and all the, the marvellous things of modern technology, that water would have just flowed out quite naturally over a lot, a lot shorter period. But you know, once you've got a lake, lake full of water and there's only certain drainage points, that's, that's all it can drain out. In the last flood we had in Lismore, they've got two huge engines, two enormous engines on some semi-trailers to pump out um, the Lismore CBD because, you know, the water wasn't going, couldn't get out fast enough. And I, I imagine those engines are still there and being used flat out now, but there's no point in pumping. You can't pump water out to something that's high. That's in, you know what I mean? That's a physical impossibility. <laughs> Is wildlife affected or have they been already been pushed out of the area? Wildlife up here, 
it's in reasonable conditions because we've still got a little bit of a big scrub left around Lismore, Byron, sort of Mullumbimby area. There's quite a bit of bushlands there. But I imagine there'll be, lot, there'll be lots of fish kills because, you know, just rubbish floating down the um, creeks. You know, where I was, there was cars and all that actually, actually on the road. The actual road floating down the, not floating down, roaring down the road, just caravans and trailers and cars. And so, you know, there's a lot of, and heaven knows how much chemicals have been washed into the, the rivers, you know, from farmers and, and land. So all that gets leached out of the soil pretty quick. So the amount of pollution in the rivers is pretty high. Once those levels go up, you get, you know, acid sulfate um, release and you know, chemicals and all that stuff. So I imagine there's going to be a lot of what has been a lot of fish killed, uh, which is, you know, not a good thing for wildlife. Um, obviously, koalas are pretty pretty tough. They've sort of survived us, beat them up for the last 200 years, and the roos are pretty tough. But, yeah, look, I'm, I imagine bird life and it's suffering, losing nests and stuff like that. Talking about that toxic water, I'd imagine you wouldn't last mm. very long in it if you fell in and then you either swallowed some no. or you got something. Yeah. No, and the hospitals have been quite inundated with people with cuts, you know, being infected. You had to get a cut and, you you know, you're in the damp and water and stuff. People get infected feet and legs and, you know. So they're, they're telling people if, you know, get a cut and it flares up, go straight to hospital and, get some antibiotics and get it treated before it you know, gets worse. So given that Port Devils and Lismore, uh, you know, how far underwater they were last time, hopefully they're not the same level this time, but lower parts of Lismore have been pretty much inundated again, so there'd be a lot of houses that would have, you know, quite substantial amounts of water in their houses again. And some people, quite a few people have moved back in and, you know, ripped all the linings off their walls and things like that and um, out on the main street. So, you know, poor devils have the same thing. So, yeah, look, depression, and uh, that's obviously set in. People, people can only take so much. You imagine losing everything you've got and going back to your house and a month later, the same thing happens. So, yeah. So it's very uh, hard hard going, but um, ScoMo doesn't seem to think it's a problem. So I suppose we'll keep digging coal and, Selling to the rest of the world. What are the local people saying about the local authorities, the SCS or even the ADF, in situations like yeah, this? Yeah, I, mean, I think generally, um, you know, the, the defence forces have been quite good. They've been, you know, obviously they're sort of stuck in a bureaucratic quagmire in terms of being free to just go and help people. But you know, we talked to. A, whole bunch of army people up there who were clearing our school the other day and all just young kids really and um, one of the young boys was originally from Lismore so yeah look they've been certainly a big help in terms of you know getting things back on on track again probably could have been better but it's just you know like I think the Lismore SES advised to evacuate Lismore last night and then rescinded that and then so people went back and then they got flooded. So it's just very hard to tell. I mean, with these sort of rain formations, they look, they tend to join up and, and um, you don't know whether they're going to drift out to sea or come back in again because most of the cloud was actually off the coast and sort of an anti-cyclone, you know, swept it back in. So, 
I, I imagine they're trying their best, and we're all human, aren't we? The, um, the SES is doing the best job they can, and they're just um, uh, struck like the rest of us, I suppose. Does the Weather Bureau understand what's happening? Is it something that they can um, put in their computer? And Yeah, I, I think this is, I wouldn't say it's a new phenomenon, but a lot of people I talk to have never seen anything like it. You know, normally you get a storm and it lasts a day or two and then goes out to sea, you know. But the, the big one, that hung around for about a week. It was like a, a great big UFO thing over over the place that stretched to Brisbane almost right down to here. So, and it just kept raining. It's just, you know, it was like huge rains and then you get showers and pretty much non-stop. So every time you think it was going to clear up, a new, a new lot would come in. And it just seemed to sit there for almost a week. I've never sort of experienced anything. Look, we are in subtropical New South Wales and it, this is our rainy season, so it's not unnatural to have a week of rain, but it's pretty unnatural to have rain and then a sort of cyclone and then rain and then sort of another cyclone and those sort of, you know, continual cyclonic conditions. It might it might rain for two weeks and, you know, have a few downpours and things like that, but not sort of not that intense like we've been seeing the last you know, couple of months. You mentioned you've seen, you've been in places where there is weather similar to this. Where's the closest to what you've been through now? Worked in Cuba for on and off for about eight years. So they get some pretty, pretty whopper storms, um, you know, being an island and the cyclone. But I've been in a cyclone in Cuba. Funnily enough, it was a lot of bamboo was growing up, tended to the whole hold the whole river system together. So I think we're going to have to a lot of bamboo somehow. <laughs> but um, as I said, like same thing, Cuba, you know, you get a cycle and it lasts a day or two and it's gone. And then the aftermath's pretty nasty, but it sort of goes and this thing was hung around for about a week and, you know, you'd have a whopping great storm and it would stop and then it'd be showering and then another one would come down. So, and, you know, we generally think of cyclones that last... 12 or 24 hours sort of thing, even a Darwin cyclone was over in about, I think, four hours or something, wasn't it? Hit, hit Darwin and then wrecked the place and then left. But this thing seemed to hang around. And it, for Ed and now we've got another sort of big thing coming right down the coast. So, it, you know, many people I've talked to, even the older folk, you know, have been around a long time, saying they hadn't seen anything like this before. And, you know, look, we've had wet seasons there all last three or four months and dribble and showers and, you know, be miserable and overcast, but not this sort of type of weather. So I imagine it's a phenomenon of the heat, the sea heating up and warming and, you know, different winds that normally wouldn't occur over that period of time, over that length of period of time. But, yeah, and I think scientists have been warning we get this sort of weather for the last, what, 20-odd years? <laughs> and we'll just ig- pretty just, much on target, don't they? Yeah, but just ignore it. It might happen, and it probably won't. But see, we're not going to worry about that until it happens. Yeah, I think if you bury your head in the sand, it'll go away. I think that's Scomo's idea, and, hang, and at the same time, hang on to a piece of coal. You know. Mm. Oh, it's, <laughs> I mean, oh, when you got the Prime Minister of Australia standing on a barn with a lump of coal, telling us this is the future for Australia and the world, it's pretty sad, sad indication of uh, anyone foolish enough to vote for the dickies. You could say a few prayers. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I'm sure Hillsong's having a few prayers <laughs> uh, on behalf of the Prime Minister to get him re-elected. 
hemp, hemp growing. How does that go in a situation like this? Do you lose your crops? Um, yeah, there's a lot of growers that lost their crops, particularly the guys that grow the good stuff, smoking, because um, you might know Mullum and Byron and there's more Nimbum are the sort of triangle of um, production of organic cannabis in Australia, the stuff you smoke. So I know that a lot of people uh, have lost their crops, so that'll be a bit, quite a dent in the local economy, uh, particularly the cash economy. But um, there's also a lot of people are growing industrial hemp now, me being one of them. So, yeah, a lot of people, have, you know, crops have gone mouldy. Hemp really doesn't like wet feet, particularly, you know, a month or two prior to when you harvest it. But having said that, we we are soldiering on with the, the hemp farming up here. But, uh, look, to be honest, bamboo does, as a biomass crop, uh, is more suitable for this sort of area, a biomass crop that you can turn into, you know, plastics and bricks and fibre and things like that. So, you know, if we do the hemp, in the right places and put the right sort of growing conditions in it. We can grow it and probably survive relatively big floods, but this is this is more than a big flood. <laughs> this is the big wet. <laughs> well, what's important now is to get over these traumas and you're putting with friends together the Earth Repair Network or networks. How is that going mm. to work? Well, we're promoting basically carbon farming, so farmers to grow hemp and bamboo, to grow lots of biomass, which can be then turned into cotton and plastics and things that we normally buy using petrochemicals and mining, you know, stuff that we mine. So if we can transform our economy from a oil-based mineral mining economy to a farm-based biomass economy, Obviously, that takes up a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, when we're wearing it or we're putting it into houses, it's storing carbon and we can use pyrolysis and then to biochar and put it back in the earth. So we have to look at that whole cycle. You know, what we do now, we dig it out of the ground, we use it for a while and we put it in a landfill somewhere and that gases off methane and CO2, uh, which obviously goes in the atmosphere and cranks up the CO2 levels in the atmosphere and the ocean. We can't keep on doing that, obviously. So we have to have a method of actually thinking, well, how do we actually stop that? Now, I'd have to say I'm pretty disappointed in the Greens of, you know, not really taking up any, any of these sorts of things. You know, they're going, well, we want to stop greenhouse. Well, how do we actually do it? And no one's really talking about an alternative economy. You know, what sort of economy do we want to actually start, start repairing the earth systems, the natural earth systems, if we keep destroying them, no no, no amount of talking about greenhouse or money shoved that it will fix it unless we actually have a plan to do that. And I don't see any that, I'm not just talking about the Greens, Labor, Liberal, Nationals, um, I don't think have any idea of how to fix a problem. Uh, and it does, it needs a, a basically a renewable economy based on um, farming really not mining and, and, and petrochemicals. Surely what you're proposing is similar to what you did many decades ago with the green team in Cuba? It is actually very similar, which, which in part was very successful, but unfortunately Chavez gave the Cubans a whole lot of oil, so <laughs> they went back. <laughs> Chavez hadn't given them oil. I imagine Cuba had been the leading light 
of examples for renewable economies. But um, having said that, the Cubans are still probably the biggest um, organic farmers, and that's where permaculture has been more successful than anywhere else in the world because they had no choice. You know, they didn't have any more chemical fertilizers from Russia and oil from Russia. And so it was either hand back the country to the Americans or, or change, and they they made that change quite spectacularly, really. Um, everyone thought they were going to collapse in the early 90s and people were buying, Americans were buying real estate that um, had freeways on it and all sorts of things, and they're still there, So and they're still poking their tongue out at the Americans so, and still doing lots of good work, but I think they, to be honest, missed the opportunity to be the sort of model for the rest of the world. I think once they got that oil back, from Chavez, everyone go, oh, good, we've got oil, let's you know, get the cars back on the road and, and you know, get the jets flying and a lot of those, uh, a lot of the creative stuff that was happening in Cuba then got put on the, on the back, back stop because, you know, the Cuban government was supporting the whole transformation of the economy to a more of a farm-based organic economy. So when you've got a government and the people on the same track, you have the potential to um, change the economy, but you know when you've got a government that's in the pocket of the um, oil companies and mining things, there's not going to be much chance of it happening in Australia unless the people actually do it themselves. And I think it's time that people did start organising themselves and you know get stuff we'll do it ourselves if you want to do it. And that we have the capacity, we we're sort of looking at a thing called 3% for Mother Earth, so like a community wealth bank where people can put in their money and we can set up things and finance them ourselves rather than going to government with a handout. Because once you you know take government money, there's all the sort of restrictions with it and you've got to do this and got to do that. And we've seen it in permaculture where people get to be with the government and the next thing they're spraying around and round up, you know. So maybe it's best we stay away from government and just get on and do it ourselves. How soon do you believe you could get something off the ground? Well, we're on just down in Yamba now, and we're just getting actually something off the ground now. We've just purchased some equipment to, I think, called a yeoman's plough, for, which, is, which is very funny, rehydrating the land, <laughs> getting water back into the land. But the interesting thing is what people don't actually understand is half the problem with these floods is that soil will only take moisture to a certain level, particularly where you've had cattle country and the soil is compressed. So it gets down to that compression zone and then runs off. So if we can get that water back into the water table and deeper down, when we have these sorts of events, there's going to be less water flowing into the rivers and obviously less floods. So it is really about rehydrating the land and we're, we're using a lot of the work that Peter Andrews did. You may have heard of Peter Andrews. He's a sort of guru of... Um, rehydrating soils in Australia and P. Yeomans, P. Yeomans set up um, water-based farms in the 50s but then chemical chemical fertilizers came along and all the farmers said, oh, we don't need all that stuff, we'll just put you know, fertiliser on the ground and we'll get the same effect and in effect destroyed their soils over a period of 30, 40 years. So we need to rebuild those soils, rehydrate them, recarbonise it. So it's a huge thing and obviously... Again, if government had any goals, they'd be backing it and um, giving people green jobs. No lack of things to be repaired in Australia. It's interesting you mentioned cattle there, and I'm thinking of cattle and sheep 
on the land here in Australia, how it's how the the feet of these animals is has impacted uh, on the soil and stopped the water going down to the water table. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. Um, heavy hoofed animals compress. We've got very fragile soils in Australia. Some of them are quite, or most of them, quite heavily clay based. So when you get heavy animals compressing the soil all the time, it compacts the soil at about 300 mil. So you only get the water penetrating down that compaction zone then running off. So we're not getting that recharging of aquifers and that storage of water. And when we think of it, this area here, as I said, was a wetland 200 years ago before we chopped it all down. And it stored trillions of litres of water. So storms like this, water seeped out of the land over periods of months and months and months and, and rehydrated the land, whereas now it just runs off and creates flooding because there's no, there's nothing to hold it back. So strategically, you know, we need need to look at that. There's a, there was an organisation in a place called Mulaney in Queensland and it was run by a group of women called Brung Landcare and they had actually dreamed up this whole thing about putting a 50-metre um, cover zone of rainforest on each side of creeks and rivers and farmers' lands, and we got a lot of funding from the government at the time, and um, they were doing marvellous jobs, and farmers were pretty happy because the water would turn into their creeks all year round that normally dried up. So, you know, we have the experience and the knowledge and the know-how to do these things. It's just the will to do them. Okay, well, all I can say at the moment is try and keep your feet dry. And, <laughs> and, we'll, and I'll talk to you again next week about some more issues that you're involved with. Great. All right, we'll look forward to it. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Wadsey, permaculturist, industrial hemp farmer, part of the Earth Repair Network. And as I said, we'll hear more from Wayne next week on the program with his eco-centro waste to wealth in the Maldives and the cannabis co-op. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're back with Danny on 3CR Breakfast and we've got Danny on the line from Fireproof. G'day, Danny. Good morning, how are you? Good. <clears throat> In fact, uh, it's uh, pretty extraordinary what uh, Fireproof is doing at the moment, is giving, given the uh, New South Wales government's uh, passing of laws to ban, effectively, um, demonstrations on roads. Can you speak to this, what's going on? Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's obviously something that we didn't quite expect when we started to do this, but it's something that we thought may possibly happen. I always like, there's a, a sort of a Gandhi quote that goes, that first they ignore you, which has happened for decades in, in this field, then they laugh at you, which is mocking climate change. It's not real. What a load of garbage, greenies. And then third, they fight you. And that's sort of where we are now. And fourth, we win. So hopefully this is <laughs> a good sign. So, um, yeah, but some strange circumstances brought this around, although they'll, they'll try and say that these law changes were brought in by um, you know, the actions of 
us and of Blockade Australia, but really this is something they've wanted to do for a long time. It seems to be the, the rightward creep of Australian politics towards shutting down all protest. And um, they've given a good shot with this, so uh, we're rolling with it and we'll see where we go. But it's not just a matter of affecting climate justice. It's going to affect all forms of progressive justice-seeking First Nations, refugees, BLM, LGBT, everyone's going to be affected by this. So hopefully we're going to have some great court cases soon and uh, this will be shown for the draconian pile of garbage that it really is. Yeah. Uh, as you, your uh, release uh, points out, that climate activists were sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. This is what this is. Uh, climate change, uh, standing there saying that uh, the federal government uh, and other governments in Australia have to actually put their pull their sleeves up and get on with... Um, dealing with the outcomes of climate change, like the floods, the fires. This is what you're about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot... We've been asking for, you know, an end to fossil fuels and things like that for a long time, which are all worthy goals. But at the same time, we are already locked into at least 1.5 degrees. And unless we make drastic changes, we're probably going to have two or more degrees of um, climate change. And that's going to be devastating. So although we can't have these magic panaceas of having carbon capture and sequestration technology that'll just appear right when we need them, we do need to look at adaptation. So we're trying to get some of those things that can really help us. So we've got three basic demands. They're all doable. They're all reasonable. And they should already have been implemented. But, you know, the government don't like to do things they need to do. They like to do things they want to do. This under this underlines the fact that you you uh, your group uh, fireproof uh, says that you're very ordinary people that are standing up. Yeah, obviously we've um, many of us have been involved in activism and social justice sort of issues, but we are we're just normal Australians. There are you know, doctors, nurses, fireys, musicians, um, actors all sorts of people from all different walks of life that all have this thing in common, which is we follow the science, we listen to those who hold the hose, is our little little phrase, because, you know, we've got um, fireys and uh, all sorts of people saying that we need to do something about this, and that's why we're here. Yeah, um, on this station, we applaud you. We don't, we don't think you have to stand up and say you're ordinary Australians. We already know you are, and you can be activists as to your heart's content. But it's interesting that you have to say it. You know, you have to make sure that it's put out there that uh, um, people who stand up in Australia over these issues aren't uh, mad coots, effectively. Yeah, like I, I thought Australia would turn for the tall poppy syndrome, but it seems like we're famous for the opposite at the moment. It's severely disheartening because the main criticisms, criticisms that we seem to get are that we're selfish, which is hilarious. My wife and I <laughs> have been... We moved out of home virtually, left our 19-year-old daughter at home, and my guide dog isn't even here, because my wife and I are blind, by the way, just in case the audience didn't know. Mm. Um, and we've spent weeks and weeks you know, planning and getting ready for this. We're giving up everything. And that's the whole point. The selfishness is thinking in a very short-term manner and saying, oh, no, 
I've been held up on the bridge for 10 minutes. The long-term thinking is, if this message doesn't get out, if we don't start to make some adaptations as well as to drastically reduce carbon emissions and start drawdown, we're all going to be in a hell of a lot of trouble. So... Can you give uh, my listeners a, a little bit of an understanding of uh, what it was like to be doing this, um, it, it being on the road there? Tell us about what's going on. So in this particular movement, I haven't been on the road. We've been very strategic about this. We've had teams that we've worked out. Some people have what we would call red rolls, which is, you know, the the aim is to, to get arrested if that happens. Yeah. And um, there are others, <clears throat> others of us who need to be there in the background, looking after media, looking after regen, looking after all those sort of things that are really important to keeping a cohesive team together. Because if, obviously, if we all just went on the road and all went to jail, yeah. then... It'd be over, Rover. <laughs> exactly. But um, my wife's been out on the road several times, and I, uh, I know by sleeping next to her and hearing her nightmares and things that that takes a toll... And I think there's a little bit of... like I have sat in the road before. My wife and I did an action in Kiama a while ago. Mm. And that was certainly... Excuse the pun for a couple of bloody... But that was very eye-opening because we um, copped an awful lot of abuse. We copped death threats. Oh. Our support team were threatened. People even said that blind people weren't able... To, you know, obviously we got put on the road by them and we were being used by them because we don't have autonomy as disabled oh. people. And <laughs> right. But yeah, it's certainly interesting because all we are is lazy, selfish um, hippies who should get a job and the majority of us have jobs and those who don't have given up their jobs to do this because it's so vital. Yeah, yeah. Now let's get back to the demands. I, I didn't Absolutely. mean to cut you off about the demands. I, I want to uh, focus on your demands now. Okay, so demands are in no particular order. Because, um, you know, we're fireproof Australia, but when we started this campaign, all of a sudden all I came along all the floods. So <laughs> yes, sort of looking at flood proofing as well. That was sort of um, in interesting. So we have, the, I guess the main demand at the moment is that all survivors of unnatural weather conditions, such as floods and fires, get rehomed at the expense of the federal government because that's what the government's for, to support the people, not to, um, you know, lock us up and not to criticise us. Um, two, we want to have... Uh, smoke filtration put into all schools, all aged care and disability facilities because it's Australian to protect the most vulnerable and to protect the future generation because we've done this to them and we need to do something to fix that or to help us to um, move in through that. And the third is that, especially because of Black Summer and these increasingly common mega fires, we demand that the government pays for a, an aerial tanker fleet to do water bombing over the on the fires because the sooner they're put out, the less chance they become mega fires. So it's you know, mitigation control, and you know Greg Mullins is um, Australia's most famous firefighter. He's, he's been on lots of boards and and he's been sort of asking for this for many years. The fireys sort of asked. I think it was 2017. Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen him speak. Uh, in a actual fact, uh, he, uh, as a professional uh, in this area, felt that he had to actually stand up. It was so grotesque that the federal government refused to actually meet with them. Yes, exactly. 
And I saw a lovely little, or I didn't, I heard a lovely little meme the other day, and it basically said, the RFS thanks Scott Morrison for giving $44 million to Hillsong Church, but Mm. are sad that they never got 20 to buy their tankers. Mm, yeah. And that's sort of the state of things right now. But it would, you know, it's compared to tanks or missiles or submarines that don't exist. Doing these things is so affordable and such a no-brainer. We have, you know, we, it, the government's betraying us. Um, have I know that uh, Block Eyed Australia and uh, I mean people have been arrested, haven't they? Oh yeah, like uh, uh, Block Eyed Australia. They're amazing. Got, what heroes? Oh, they, like, they absolutely are. Like, I'm, I'm not a, um, a spry person. You get my fat butt up onto one of those poles, it'll probably bend and snap. But, but what they do is just amazing. And the thing that they, about them that I absolutely love is that they just go and do it. I know. There's no ifs or buts, and they have one simple demand. We are going to um, impact infrastructure because, you know, they know that we've got to stop oil and gas and coal and the best way to upset the people that are running it is to hurt their bottom dollar because all they care about is money, not human life. I mean, it's quite clear, or else they'd be doing something about it. I mean, it's not like... It's like they're juicing the lemon for the last scraps of uh, wealth and uh, that, uh, in fact, because otherwise you'd say that they've uh, mentally uh, deficient or... um, uh, oh, no, you, you know it, what I mean? Like, it doesn't make any sense. To, to, to be desperate over the last few crumbs of profit that you can eke from a dying planet at the expense of the future of all mankind and probably most species on the face of the earth, it is absolute insanity. And we, we just don't understand that sort of thinking. It's sociopathic, if you want me to be totally honest. And the problem is that these people have been doing this for so long, they've got so much entrenched power and they've got so much narcissism that they're not going to see what needs to happen. Where do their kids go? Do their kids get to um, go to New Zealand and live in their billionaires' bunkers? Because there'll be nothing else left if we don't do some drastic work now. Um, So what's the plan? What's going to happen uh, moving on? Well... Yeah, it's, uh, we're always trying to pivot to what's going on. So obviously these new draconian laws that have come in have changed things. You know, it, although you know, it was always uh, risky to do what we do and people have been getting fines and, um, and, and different orders and things, but now that these laws have come in, we're talking about up to two, well, talking about two years imprisonment or up to $22,000 in fines, which is just... It's amazing. Like <clears throat> that's um, this is for ordinary people who are saying, "Please listen to us. Come to the table and talk." But we're the criminals, not the people who are actually causing this to happen. We're going to keep going as long as we possibly can, day after day. We're going to keep showing the idiocy of these laws by getting on the road, by um, doing what they don't want us to do, because we know that this is, as I said before, this is just a tactic to silence all dissent. The only um, so they've, they've made some rule changes so that the unions can do their demonstrations because you don't want to put off other people who have power. But yeah, I what, have they be... have they actually isolated uh, certain groups in relation to stopping road traffic? Well, I'm I'm not sure they've actually done it for, for stopping road traffic, but they, they're being a lot more lenient on unions and things like that, so that there's still some form of democratic process going on, but. 
Ah, so, so what they're doing is pitting two interest groups against each other. Yeah, in a way, what they're really doing is just they're making this so broad that mm. they can allow what they want and they can shut down whatever they don't want. Right. And the problem is the things that they usually don't want are the things that are about progressive um, action, about decency and about survivability. Uh, and, against... and, of course, Sydney is such a car-oriented place. Oh, yeah. It's like, okay, one of the reasons that this really blew up or one of the excuses that they were able to use to, to make this into such a big thing that they virtually illegally pushed through laws that weren't even having to, had time to be questioned by the other parties and things is because we had the gall to, to block the spit bridge on the day that the Minister for Roads happened to be driving to work. And she, got, <laughs> she got very upset. She looked over to the car next to her and she saw the poor parents in the car with their children trying to go to school and she felt so bad for them and so bad for her having to wait five minutes that she decided, right, here we go. Let's go and change these laws and we'll get these hippies fixed. And it's it, like the absolute gall and selfishness of that is stunning. That's mm, interesting. Fascinating. I mean, it, it's just their lever-loop um, little-mindedness, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah, but also there are some, some funny things because the Spit Bridge, you know, is, um, gets people to some quite wealthy places and yeah, non quite wealthy right. places. So uh, one of our people was actually being seen by a magistrate. The magistrate said, oh, and I should let you know, I was actually caught up in the traffic at the Spit Bridge the other week. Not that I'll hold that against you in my judgment. <laughs> We've obviously affected the right people or the wrong people at the right or wrong time, depending on your perspective. Thanks for talking to us, Danny. Good luck, eh? Absolutely. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. Thanks for your company this morning. That's it for us on Breakfast. Stay tuned tomorrow at the same time and stay with us now for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.